Welcome again to City Life. I want to give a quick shout out to somebody almost expected to see tonight, Neil Meast. And uh, he is deployed and he was possibly coming back tonight, but he is coming back next Friday. So get all your hugs ready um, for him. Give all your hugs to Lauren tonight. And we're praying for you. We love you guys. We're so excited that he's coming back. And uh, yeah, give her all the hugs in the world. And she said Neil podcast. So Neil, here's your shout out. <laughs> but anyways, maybe you walked in here and you caught a whiff of what you thought was a bonfire. So you went back outside to look around and you were like, eh, what is that? Maybe you're from like a, a traditional background. You thought we were doing incense tonight. You're wondering what is going on. Or maybe in worship you were like, maybe I need to go pull the fire alarm. Do not be alarmed. That is just the men back from the men's retreat where there were many fires and I've showered since and I still can't get the smell off my hands. All this equipment, my guitar smells like smoke. So if you smell smoke, that's why. All right, that's it. We're all back from the men's retreat. We had an amazing time uh, together as men. So many faces here were there being poured into and pursuing God together. So thanks to everybody that came. And if you smell smoke, that's why. But we are back here tonight. Again, looking at our vision statement, to build the church Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. To build the church Jesus envisioned, to love the world he died to save. And the vision statement is built on the three words of this series and the three declarative statements of Jesus Christ that we get them from. Why, do, and be. So two weeks ago, we started the sermon here in Suffolk by looking at why, right? And when we talk some about mission statements for organizations, like Pampers' mission statement was and is healthy, happy baby development. Uh, Nike's mission statement is innovation and inspiration for athletes all over. So pastors don't just like alliteration. Apparently mission statements like alliteration as well. But one that I was thinking about this week was five guys in the business of selling burgers because I had one and it was delicious. That is a very simple mission statement. We're in the business of selling burgers. The menu is simple. The burgers are simple, and yet they're delicious because they have a focus, they know their why, and they stick to it. So we looked at that week where Jesus declared his mission statement. He declared his why for coming in Luke 19, 10, where he says, I came to seek and save the lost. And this is deemed, again, by many theologians to be the most significant statement that Jesus made in his entire ministry because it tells why he came. But it is one of three declarative statements in this series made by Jesus that we're looking at. Again, the first, Luke 19.10, we get our why, to seek and save the lost. That's in Luke 19.10. And then in Matthew 16.18, we get the do from Jesus' declarative statement where he says, I will build my church. And last week we looked at the beginning of the church in Acts 1 and the, the words Jesus spoke there and we asked, is his final command and his final concerns my first concerns? And the week before that, when we looked at his why, we asked, is his why my why? Is his reason for coming my reason for living? So those represent the past two weeks at both campuses. Again, Pastor Fred is working through this same series with his own sermons. So you could, you could get two for one, BOGO, except you're not buying anything, right? You could just podcast that at citylifeva.com. So this week at both campuses, we're looking at the B. And we get this from Jesus' statement about his disciples in John 13, 35, where he says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus says, seek and save the lost. And we ask, okay, how? It's a big ask. He says, build my church. 
And we say, okay, how? And he says, become people of love and virtue. Have love for one another. See, God's plan in building the church isn't about building buildings, right? We don't even, we don't even need more buildings, right? We can share facilities like we do at City Life. It's not about building buildings. It's about building people. It's not about brick and mortar. It's about flesh and blood and hearts encountering God's love and living changed because of it. And we'll look at it tonight. God calls us to change. He calls us to become. And the statement at the heart of this series is, when I become who I'm supposed to be, I will accomplish all I was created to do so I can fulfill the why Jesus came. So today we ask, who are we supposed to be? And obviously this might look different for different people. There's diversity in background. There's diversity in calling. There's diversity in personality. But tonight the, the one diversity we don't celebrate is a diversity in character. And integrity. We're all called to look like Christ and be people of love and virtue. But I want to read this verse in John 13, 35 in its greater context. So we can get an understanding understanding of what's going on and what Jesus is saying. And it's in the passage that Steph was referencing for communion. Happens at the Last Supper. Jesus has just gotten down and washed all his disciples' feet. They've, They've had the Last Supper. He's predicted his betrayal. And then it says here in Luke 13... That as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. And God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Let's pray. God, these words, they seem simple, that we're called to love, and yet they're some of the hardest words in Scripture. So hard for us to take and apply and live out as a church and as your body. So, God, I pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, whatever perspective needs to shift, whatever needs to be aligned to your will in our hearts and our lives, we just give you permission, Holy Spirit. Speak to us tonight. Give us a word. Encourage, convict, challenge, but draw us all closer to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. So, again, two weeks ago, we were talking about mission statements. Like organizations have mission statements, businesses have mission statements, a lot of churches have mission statements. And in some ways, some families have mission statements. They might just call it like a family motto, family uh, mantra, I don't don't know. Uh, But there's a pastor, Judah Smith, I used to podcast him all the time some years ago. He pastors on the West Coast, and he shared once that every day as he's dropping his kids off to school, He turns back from the driver's seat of the minivan, and he says, we are Smiths. What does that mean? And every day they answer, we're kind and encouraging, and we look for lonely people. So every day when he's dropping them off, before they get out of the car, he's like, hey, we're Smiths. What do we do? Who are we? What does that mean? And every day they say, we are kind and encouraging, and we look for lonely people. Every day, over and over and over again. Anybody have anything familiar? Maybe it's not even done like that, but just a, a family motto or, or, or something you repeat your, to your kids or have them repeat to you. He'll just don't quit. That's good. You got one for Ross? We can do hard things. It's true. 
Yeah, I'm at the age where, where Raji, I don't drop him off at school. The bus comes to get him. And as the bus, it has to pull, go past us and come back around. As it comes back around, I just, I pray for him. And, and he can't understand it. And then I just look him in the eyes, and he probably can't understand. I'm like, hey, nice hands, right? <laughs> he goes off to school, and he's got some feisty little hands. But two things I pray over my son when he's asleep and he's in bed, and I've just been praying for him for the past really couple years now again and again and again, is a simple prayer that God would grow him into a man of character and courage. Because those are two things that men in our culture need, people in our culture need, character and courage. Over and over again, character and courage, those two words. And maybe it's because I'm spoiled by Hollywood and movies like Leonidas to his son, respect and honor, respect and honor. Maximus before going into battle, strength and honor, just these two-word mantras. Maybe I'll develop it from there. But uh, I bring this up because we have a God who's our father, Jesus who according to Scripture is our brother, and we have the family of faith right? The church. So the, the word Christians means little Christs, right? So it's like Jesus in John 13 is turning to his disciples from the front seat of the minivan, and he's asking, okay, we are little Christs. What does that mean? We are Christians. What does that mean? And what's his answer? Love. Love one another. Be loved to others. And maybe you're thinking, that's not surprising. That was not a plot twist for me, reading my, reading my Bible to think that we should be known for our love. But, man, it, it's like so much else in life. I don't think we sometimes need another answer or more knowledge as much as we need to apply what we already know. That we're called to love one another. We're good with the loving ourselves, but loving one another, loving our neighbor, loving our family, that's where it gets hard. Like when Steph tells me to do the dishes, I don't come back an hour later and like, hey, I memorized what you said to me. You said, you said do the dishes. Or like, I know how to say do the dishes in Greek. Like, I learned how to say it in the original language. Or I'm going to get Q and Nate and Jesse, they're going to come over. We're going to study what it means that you said to do the dishes. No, she just wants me to do the dishes. Right? And, and, and so many of us, we've studied love, the agape love. We know all the different Greek words for love. We've done life groups on love. We know we're called to love. And yet, what is the witness of the church in our era? We're not known for love. We're, we think if I want to be known as, as loving Christ, I'm going to shout down sin and speak the truth the loudest by any means necessary. And we want to declare, and that's good, because we should declare like, we don't subscribe to the Francis of Assisi quote that he likely never said, right? Look it up. Or preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. No, we, we subscribe to Scripture where it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? We are called to declare. But there's, a, <laughs> there's some steps to declaring. We should declare. We're meant to declare. But we often skip one very important step, which is love. All right, 1 Corinthians 13 is read at many a wedding, but it's a powerful passage. It says in the beginning, oh, first, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Translation, annoying. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Who wants to be nothing? <laughs> no, not me. Right? <laughs> Paul is saying, look, love comes first. You want what you say to come back without any fruit? Speak it without any love. Right. A useful 
flow chart for leadership is discover, demonstrate, declare. You discover truth, demonstrate it, and then declare it, and people will follow you because you're, you're demonstrating it. You discover vision, demonstrate vision, and then declare vision. You can discover God's love, demonstrate God's love, and then declare God's love. Again, we should declare, but too often we skip the second step. We get to declaring and berating and we shout down and we shoot messages from our high horses. But too rarely do we demonstrate love. I've shared this story before years ago here, but it's a story of a young man who attended a university in London. And he became interested in the Christian faith. And upon his graduation, he was almost convinced but was still seeking evidence for this faith. Like he wanted to see it demonstrated, that it was practical and true. So he accepted employment in East Africa and for seven months lived in the home of a Christian family. As soon as he discovered they were followers of Christ, he decided their home would be the ideal testing ground for the evidence he sought. Unfortunately, as the months passed, he saw nothing that attracted him. The family was apathetic toward him in their faith. They didn't reach out to him or to others. They were casual about their commitments in general. In fact, they complained about any sacrifices they had to make on behalf of others. They never connected with him. Consequently, this student's interest in God turned to disappointment, and he left his pursuit of Christ and went a different direction, moving back home to India. He eventually led a revolution, and this young man's name was Gandhi. You know, it was Gandhi, one of his most famous quotes, probably was fruit of this experience, where he said, I like your Christ. (laughs) I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know, John, who recorded the passage we read in John 13, also said in his epistle, his letter to the church in 1 John 2, 6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did, right? (laughs) Your Christians should be like your Christ. If you say you're in God, you should live as Jesus did. And when we don't, the world notices. We bear his name, Christians, little Christs. But do we look like him? I've shared this story, it was a long time ago too, but Alexander the Great, right, this conqueror, this mighty warrior, he once found a soldier in his ranks who was accused of cowardice in the face of the enemy. And when asked what his name was, the soldier replied, Alexander. And to this, Alexander said, either change your name or change your behavior. We're sharing a name, let's share behavior. You know, our culture bears the name Christian pretty lightly. Three quarters of our nation would say that they're Christians, they're believers, but they walk whatever path they choose. And God would say, hey, either change your name or change your behavior. And maybe you say, wait, 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 wait. I thought God accepts us all, like as we are. And that's true. This is the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to change ourselves to come to Christ. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Christ. We come to Christ and we're changed. But changed is a key word. It's okay to not be okay. When you come to the cross, you don't have to dot all your I's and cross all your T's. It's just not okay to stay that way. Think about it. The good news would no longer be good news if God met us in our sin with his grace and then just left us there. That's no longer good news. As John puts it, those who call themselves Christians should live like Jesus did. So how many of you guys have been saved for like 10 years? You've been following Christ for at least 10 years. 20 years. 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. You got some hands here, right? Have you perfected this yet, living as Christ did? Yeah, this does not happen overnight. There's no secret sauce. There's no Disney transformation. Time and time again in life, we'll fall short. 
We'll call ourselves Christians and yet not live as Christ did. It happens. But you know what? What I think of is when we so often think of hypocrisy in the church because this is, that's a triggering word for people or, or falling short in the church. We immediately think of those people. We point the finger towards scandals, point the finger towards moral failings, and we have this knee-jerk reaction towards anything that reeks of hypocrisy. But you know, a helpful question for me and a really humbling question for me is what would the church look like if everyone looked like me? Right? What would the church look like if everybody looked like me, lived like me, talked like me, practiced their Christianity like me? Would the church be empty or full? Would it be welcoming or cold? Would it be broken, shut down, or thriving and ministering? Right? That question, because we like, we like to take Scripture and make it a magnifying glass and hold it over other people's lives. Scripture is meant to be a mirror, first and foremost, where it, we look at our lives and we can ask questions like this. And let me personally, even as your pastor, I can say there are times where that question is scary because I've been following Christ for over 10 years and I still got a lot of growing to do. But it's not a question without hope because the Holy Spirit works in every one of us. In the same way the Holy Spirit hovered over creation and chaos in Genesis 1 and brought order and beauty, if your life seems chaotic, guess what? Good news, God has brought beauty out of chaos before and he does it in each one of us. And what does he create? And what does he, he, he creates, simply put, love. Love. Again, 1 Corinthians 13 is this famous passage. It's often isolated and used at weddings and alike, but it's sandwiched between chapters on the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit wants to do in each one of us. It's about how the Holy Spirit wants to do a work in me and in you. And I want to read 1 Corinthians 13. And I don't have my Bible bookmarked, so I'm going to turn there as you do. Got there fast. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read 1 through 11. It says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love others... I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, again, it's talking about these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy re reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these things is love. Again, you probably heard that read at weddings. <laughs> and the point we opened with is the one that Paul hits on in the beginning that we want to declare, but if we don't demonstrate love first, it'll come back fruitless. 
If we don't demonstrate love, ultimately our declarations will ring hollow. And this word that Paul uses for love is agape. And, and I just wrote down a definition um, in, in, a, in a Bible dictionary where it says the Greek, Greek word is agape. And it's used here to describe the highest form of love. It is the love God has for his people. It is an intense affection that, hear this, must be demonstrated. It is a loyal, endless, and unconditional commitment of love. Feelings are attached to this love. It is not abstract, but again, listen, devoted to demonstrating the inward feelings of love toward another with acts of kindness and benevolence. So agape isn't just love declared. It is love demonstrated. It is, I love that phrase, devoted to demonstrating. And many theologians, right, would say that love is the chief virtue. Like people that study the Bible for a living would say love is the chief virtue, but love is also the root from which all other virtues grow. Agape is a virtue comprehensive word. And maybe, what am I talking about? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. All of these qualities that Paul just listed are a part of love. They're facets of love. And I can't remember what pastor or what book uh, dialed this up for me that I've never forgotten. But in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is writing, and it closely parallels what he wrote elsewhere in the, in the letter to the church in Galatia about the fruits of the Spirit. They all line up. Rejoices with the truth is joy. Keeps no record of wrongs is peace. Patient is patience. <laughs> kind, kindness. Does not delight in evil, goodness. Never fails but perseveres, faithfulness. Not boastful or proud, gentleness. Not easily angered, self-control. Again, love is a virtue comprehensive word. If we're called to love and we're called to all these things, then we're called to be people of virtue. And if you've been here for months or years, you've probably heard the 24 virtues referenced or the 12 pathways. If those are, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, find somebody in a blue shirt, get one of these short booklets you can read in one evening and feel very proud of yourself. You read a whole book, but it's our discipleship model where we talk about the 12 pathways, which we'll hit on in a moment, and the 24 virtues. Where does this number 24 come from, right? What, why 24 virtues? Well, they come from the five great growth lists in Scripture. Passages of Scripture where we are told this is how you should grow. This is what you should grow into. If we're in the business of building people, this is what we're working towards. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. This is the fruit. And so there they are. Sorry. <laughs> the 24 virtues. They come from Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Romans 12, 9 through 21, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, again, the fruits of the Spirit. And then 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 is another list that Peter gives the church. And I love that Peter, after giving his list in verse 8, he says immediately after telling his, his people how to grow, he says, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more you grow like this, this list in your life, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that knowledge that you're itching to declare the truth, you're itching to shout from the rooftops and post from your Facebook statuses, it will be more productive if you demonstrate all this in your life when you declare it. And this will look different in different people, Right? The idea isn't that we're all going to make ourselves clones of one another. And the idea isn't even that God wants to change how he made you. He wants to fix what has been broken and broken by sin. 
He wants to restore the image where we, we were created in, which is his image. We were made in his image. Anybody ever done wine and design? You can raise Amanda, anybody else, right? The idea, <laughs> we got husbands raising wives' hands. <laughs> wine and, any man ever done wine and design, right? Hey, I like painting. No shame. I never have, though. Anyways. <laughs> wine and design, the idea is, never been there for reports, right? Technically, everyone is painting the same thing. There's wine involved, hence wine and design. But they're painting the same image, right? They're imitating a painting. Am I doing this? Is this right? People that have done it? Thank you. Okay. So after hours of trying to replicate the same painting with their own painting, using the same color palette, same size canvases, again, trying to imitate the exact same piece of art, there is a wide diversity in what each person's painting is, looks like. And that's celebrated in those classes. It's not scorned that, hey, yours doesn't look like theirs or yours doesn't look like the, the product that we were trying to imitate. Each is unique. None is the same. And in a similar way, we are all called to look like Christ, to imitate Christ, to model Christ, try to be like Christ. And each one of us will look different as we do that. Because, again, we all have different life experiences. We all have different personalities. We all come from maybe even different cultures. So it will look differently, and we celebrate that. Diversity in the church, diversity uh, in all these different ways. But, again, the one place we don't celebrate diversity is diversity of character. Right? We're all called to the character of Christ, love and virtue. So the question I want to ask tonight is, is whose portrait are you painting? What does it look like? What you're painting. You know, to quote an, another person, Nietzsche once said, I would believe in their salvation if they looked a little more like people who have been saved. Right? When you lack in character, the 24 virtues, you lack in fruit, it shows. Right? Sometimes we want to declare truth and salvation. We should live lives that look like we've been saved. And when people come to me and they say, I feel like I'm drifting, I'm dry, you know, one of a million adjectives. I'm just not where I need to be. What I'll often point to is, is what we call the 12 pathways. We call them the 12 pathways because if you're following Christ, these are paths you will walk on. If you're following Christ biblically, these are 12 things that will just be active in your life. Prayer, fasting, worship, scripture, gathering, accountability, relationship, reaching, stewardship, generosity, resting, and serving. Again, that's all in that little green book. If all this is foreign to you, grab one of those on the way out for free from a blue shirt. But if you've been here for a while, maybe you've been in this series thinking, okay, this is, this is fresh vision, but what about these old treasures like heaven now, heaven forever? And we talk about that all the time for the past decade plus. This idea that David says, like, I would have lost hope if I didn't think I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Corinthians says that God wants to whet our appetites for heaven by giving us a taste of heaven here on earth. Jesus said himself, I come to give life and life abundant, and that eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts now. Eternal life is in session. But I think sometimes we, we hear about these things, life and life abundant. We think we hit order, and it, like, shows up on our front porch like an Amazon order. Like somebody just rings the door, hey, life and life abundant, here it is. No, it's a path. It's a journey. And it takes, dirty word in our culture, discipline. Spiritual disciplines. You know, last night and this morning at the men's retreat, we were talking about four pillars 
of, of a man, just four identities that we walk in. Uh, the king, the mentor, the warrior, and the friend. And last night, Cam Miro was sharing about the identity of the king and how so many men, we abdicate the role we're supposed to play, especially in our home, to lead and set the tone and lead spiritually. We abdicate it. And his point was when we abdicate our role, it hurts both us and it hurts our families and it hurts the people around us. And, he, and of course, this sermon's in the back of my head and it's still marinating, so I'm just thinking, man, there's, sometimes we abdicate the call we have to grow, right? That abdication of sanctification, if I can rhyme like pastors do, right? But maybe you're thinking, what's sanctification? Right? There's sanctification and there's justification. Justification, you could call it like positional holiness, through grace, through Jesus' blood, at the cross, nothing more and nothing less. Through that, we're in good standing with God. Forgiven, called a son and daughter, like called a son and daughter of God. That is incredible. But the same way, so many of us have young kids. You want to see your daughter, your son grow and develop. Like we're, we're tracking Raj's development. We're tracking his growth. We want to see him grow. And in the same way, God wants to see us grow. We're called to look more and more like God the Father. We're called to look more and more like Jesus Christ. And this process, which doesn't end this side of the grave, is called sanctification. Now, justification is what will matter at heaven's gates. I'm just going to quote the lyric, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not my own. Nothing I did. But I would tell you that sanctification is part of what brings heaven and the kingdom of God here. You know, discipline has become such a, again, dirty word in a culture that preaches, hey, do whatever makes you happy. And as a result, there's this abdication, abdication of our sanctification. But you want true happiness? You want to experience life and life abundant here, obey what God commanded you to do. Obey God's word. Walk the pathways and disciplines he's laid out for you. It's tried and tested, guys. There's life found in it. You know, in these pathways, we grow. In those pathways, we begin to grow those 24 virtues in ourselves. People are built, and ultimately the church is built. But again, what would the church look like if the church looked like you? What would the church look like? If the church looked like me, would these be present or absent? Would the church be prayerful or prayerless? Would it be relational or cold, accountable or full of hidden sin, generous or stingy? What would the church look like if it looked like me? Ultimately, my hope is that the church will look like Christ. It will look like Jesus because ultimately that's the portrait we're called to paint. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in his letter to the church there, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. I think it's the King James Version, and it's really close to the Greek, because the Greek basically says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, like I think last week I joked being an English major, and I also was an, an art major. I was a double major at William & Mary. And part of what we had to do as art majors is we had to do uh, basically an imitation, but in art it's called a copy, and to take a painting by some master, and try to replicate it as best you can. And I remember the teacher even made us flip it upside down, so we're not even focusing on the objects. We're focusing on colors and, and, and the strokes, trying to, match, trying to match the painting as best as possible. And my mom loved Monet, so I did the lady with the parasol, and it, I don't have it with me because it's hanging in her house. So that's a, a copy. I'm sure you can't even tell which one's the, the real one. It's probably mind-boggling to you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no matter how hard I tried... I can't match it up perfect. 
So why do art majors, they, why do they imitate? Why do they make copies? Why when you go to museums do you see people with easels painting a painting, right? Like shouldn't you be out doing a landscape or somebody's portrait? Why are you painting a painting that already exists? Well, Because it teaches technique. It shows you how. It might inspire other paintings. It makes you a better painter yourself, trying to match the eye, trying to match the, the cloth, trying to mix a color in your palette that matches the, the color on the painting and on the other canvas. So again, what portrait are you painting? Or maybe a better question, whose portrait are you painting with your life? Again, the answer I want at the end of my life is that my painting looks something like Christ. It's going to be imperfect like that. But I hope that the portrait I've painted resembles Jesus Christ, that I could say, imitate me as I imitated Christ. And I would tell you, every day, if I could have the worship team come up, every day as we try to imitate Christ, we're laying down another stroke with our conversations, our relationships, our interactions. We're picking another color and putting it on the canvas. What portrait am I painting? Every day. Another portion of that painting is done. What portrait are you painting? Every day another stroke, every day another color. May it be that the portrait I'm painting is Jesus Christ and his love and his virtue. We don't know what Jesus looked like, right? but we know what he was like. We know he was loving, full of virtue. Right? Raj looks nothing like me. Newsflash, right? We adopted him. But he's going to have my mannerisms. He already laughs like I do. It's weird. <laughs> so many, like, facial expressions. We're, newsflash, many of us don't look Middle Eastern, right? We ain't going to look like Jesus and what he looked like, but we can look like his heart, his love, and his virtue. And it's never done. It's never going to be completed. Day in and day out, you might look back and say, man, that stroke was terrible. <laughs> that color was not correct. But you know what's great about oil paintings? You just paint right over it. In the same way, there's grace. You maybe didn't hit the mark that day. You didn't match Jesus' strokes uh, completely. Your color and tone was wrong in that conversation or moment. Guess what? There's grace, and we can keep painting the portrait. But ask yourselves, whose portrait am I painting? Am I looking more and more like Jesus, or am I conforming him to my image, right? Again, if the church, everybody in the church looked like you, what would the church look like? Would it be growing or stagnant? Would we be growing in those pathways and those 24 virtues, or would it just kind of be meh, as the kids like to say? <laughs> Is there an abdication of sanctification where, yeah, we're justified, but God wants us to grow, look more like Christ, look more like him. We've got this God's word to direct us in it. Are we walking the pathways, growing in virtue? That's the call. Again, none of us do it perfectly. We mess up strokes and colors all over the place, but there's grace. So as we stand tonight and go into worship tonight, Jesus, we thank you for the grace you give us. And Holy Spirit, again, we ask that when we ask the question, what would the church look like if, if everybody looked like me? That you would show us. Help us to understand. Speak to us tonight. Guide us in your truth. And Jesus, I pray that we will be a people, God, that don't conform to the patterns of the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Through your word, through worshiping you, and tonight we do it again. We praise you and we worship you in this place. But if God lays anything on your heart, 
Even if you've just been going through a tough season, you need prayer for anything at all. Anthony and Amanda would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. Or maybe you hear about justification and sanctification. You're like, I'm not even to the sanctification part. I, I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Then again, let that night be tonight. Whatever it is, we would love to pray for you. But as a body, as a family of faith, let's worship our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ.